Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, what's going on? And Haley Knopf. Hey, Dean. Hey, Amber. Uh, guys, nice to be here with you as always. I did want to have a little update. We always say we're going to update on stories that we're following. And there are a few kind of notable things that have happened with Brian Flores. That's the NFL former head coach who um, filed a pretty explosive suit against the league for discrimination. So two things have happened with him. Number one, he got a job uh, in the league. It's with the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's as a senior defensive assistant and linebackers coach, which Mm -hmm. are words I read and do not fully understand as a (laughs) not entirely following sports person. But basically, you know, he went from being a head coach in the past to what is obviously a lesser job, but at least he is employed in the league again. Right. Now, do we know if that's going to have any kind of impact on the litigation that he's filed against the NFL? Uh, I don't think so, because he really filed this litigation because he wanted to shine a spotlight on practices within the league. So just because he got a job doesn't mean that his previous allegations simply go away. And also, he went on Real Sports on HBO. And while he was on that show, and he was there with his lawyers, he's been doing a lot of press about the suit. He talked about how when he was fired from the Miami Dolphins, they offered him, and I quote, millions of dollars, he says, if he signed a bunch of separation documents that included a non-disclosure agreement and a non-disparagement agreement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you only bring that up on a talk show to say like, hey, I didn't do that so that I could talk about these practices that I think are really messed up in the league, Um, which is a sign that he really wants to continue his crusade against what he sees as bias in the NFL. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, I think it's really interesting for the fact that if you sort of compare this to even just, you know, six, seven years ago when Colin Kaepernick was trying to raise a lot of the same, maybe less specific, but kind of broad allegations of racism against the NFL, he was pretty much blacklisted from the league. So it's interesting now that in this forum, it's taken a very different turn and kind of had a different outcome. And perhaps the NFL is hoping to avoid the very, very negative publicity that they got during the Colin Kaepernick stuff. Yeah, there's going to continue to be plenty to watch here, I think. So, you know, just one we're continuing to keep a watch on. Also in the world of sports, which I cannot believe on this show how often you guys have gotten me to talk about sports stories that I actually find fascinating. It's really, I'm turning over a new leaf, you guys. (laughs) Um, But we have uh, an attorney on today's show as our main guest, Nicole Shaharsky. She's one of the appellate attorneys that was working with the U.S. women's soccer team. And they recently reached a pretty impressive, large settlement of $24 million against against the league for pay inequity. So we're going to talk all about that with her. Very exciting. Can't wait to hear what you guys uh, talked about there. Yeah, I was kind of uh, starstruck, honestly. It was <laughs> it was very exciting to have her. Yeah, it was it was a nice chat too. Kind of got into um, why that that resolution is so important. So stay tuned for that. But first, I know we want to turn to a couple of other news stories. Haley, what do you have for us first? Yeah, the U.S. Copyright Office has weighed in on whether art created by a computer. Um, and that is not a human using a computer. It is the just the computer creating this art can be copyrighted. And the answer was a resounding no. The office's three-person appeals board refused to grant a copyright to an artificial intelligence machine for its computer-generated image of a landscape. And the landscape was called 
a recent entrance to paradise, which was an effort to simulate the experience of a dying brain. I have a million questions for you, so I can't (laughs) wait to get into this. Well, let's start with, you know, I know there's been a lot of push to to figure out what intellectual property rights AI could hold itself. Usually we've seen that on the patent side. Is that related to any of this patent matter stuff? It is. It is. So this is the latest request from Stephen Thaler, the AI researcher behind the machine, which is named Dabus. I did a bunch of extensive research. It is Dabus, not Dabus. Oh, nice. (laughs) I'm very certain. And uh, that stands for Device for the Autonomous Bootstrapping of Unified Sentience. Haley, I'm so glad you got us the correct <laughs> pronunciation of Dabus because when Dabus becomes our overlord, maybe right? we'll look kindly on us for having yeah. said it correctly. It's going to be important for our survival. <laughs> in, in case Dabus listens to podcasts, which I, you know, who knows? We got to make sure we get Probably. Right. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So Thaler has been on a campaign to get different types of intellectual property protections for not just art, but things invented or designed by Dabus. And so far, he hasn't seen a ton of success. Okay, well, let's talk about this piece of art in particular, though. First off, did we all see it? Did we look at the... I uh, did, yeah. Before, <laughs> After we talked about this in our production meeting, I immediately, of course, was like, let me take a good look at this art because art is so subjective. I just wanted to see what AI would create. So happy yeah. to talk about that. I know it's, it's a little weird on a podcast to talk about a visual form of art, but I still want to do it. Yeah, it's a bit of an acid trip, that's for sure. It is. I mean, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's pretty. Yeah. It appears to be a tunnel of foliage and flowers around uh, like a train track or a path of sorts. And how it was created, according to Thaler, is he allowed the random snipping connections within Dabus to simulate a dying brain and then... This is what Dabas cranked out. Okay. I mean, not to play art critic, but I can't help myself. You tell the machine to simulate a dying brain and it literally makes like a tunnel into the afterlife. Is that what we're seeing here? Because that's what I saw in the picture when you give it like, oh, it's about a dying brain. And then they call it, what was the name of it? Like something par- like entrance to paradise or whatever. I'm like, okay, it, maybe, maybe the AI is a little cliche. Yeah, A Recent Entrance to Paradise is the title. And Dabas came up with that title. Oh, yeah, Dabas did it all. It's not even not even the human. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, okay, so, <laughs> so we get this, you know, what art critic Amber is calling a cliche piece of art, but even cliche art can be copyrighted. So what did the Copyright Office say about this application that was on behalf of a machine? The Copyright Office said it has no desire to depart from, quote, a century of copyright jurisprudence and copyright the work. It said, quote, copyright law only protects the fruits of intellectual labor that are founded in the creative powers of the human mind. And it noted that it was accepting Thaler's claim that the picture was created by a machine without any creative contribution from a human, without, you know, diving into that, the logistics too much. It was just like, sure, sure. We're going to just go ahead and say that that's true. But no, this machine can't have this copyright. I mean, I think, you know, that sort of makes sense to me. Thaler hasn't had a ton of luck in the U.S. Maybe we'll talk about that a bit more, too. But also, you kind of think about, like, what is copyright for? And it's not to just 
it's usually to protect the artists. It's not just to lock up works and make sure other people can't use it for any reason. It really is to protect artistic endeavor. So, you know, it's hard to see that stretching to a machine. It is. And the Supreme Court has, well, it, it was kind of interesting because the the appeals board pointed to some really, really old Supreme Court rulings where they were just like, hey, look, the Supreme Court is clearly saying that copyright protections are for artists that are made of flesh and bone. I, I like that they spell it out that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it certainly seems like there's almost even a little bit of creativity coming from the copyright office here to, <laughs> right. to really constructively be able to say why they don't think this deserves a copyright. So Haley, tell us, what is uh, Thaler actually saying about this? I assume he's not very happy with this outcome. He is not. Um, his attorney, Ryan Abbott, said that they plan to appeal. And here's what Abbott told Law 360. Quote, AI is able to make functionally creative output in the absence of a traditional human author. And protecting AI-generated works with copyright is vital to promoting the production of socially valuable content. I mean, I get what they're saying, that you know it's producing unique work and that traditionally copyright would protect that. But flip side, AI, in theory, could generate a whole lot of work very quickly and, in essence, maybe squeeze out human creators. Yeah, I'm I'm terrified, frankly, but... <laughs> okay, well, let's circle back to, you know, we talked a little bit about how Thaler has tried this with patents. What has gone on with that? Yeah, so he hasn't really had any luck in the U.S. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has rejected his applications seeking patents on several inventions that Davis supposedly developed. And a Virginia federal court agreed with that decision. However, he did get a patent in South Africa for two of Davis's inventions last year. Those inventions were a type of beverage container and a type of flashing beacon used for attracting attention in emergencies. I absolutely love the kinds of inventions that can get copyright protection. So, right. <laughs> The Yeah, the descriptions were interesting. Um, and Thaler has made some inroads in the federal court of Australia. So who knows? Maybe one day Dabas will have, you know, all the patents and humans will worship Dabas and that will, <laughs> well, that will be our only purpose. But for now, it is safe to paint as many railway tracks um, surrounded by foliage as you'd like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, this is really interesting, though, and I, I hope that we kind of see the trademark office I have a feeling that they're going to be dealing with this a little bit more in the future. So I wonder how that's going to develop. Uh, we're going to move on now to another story that's not quite as fun, but has been captivating the legal audience for uh, the last week or so. So for the past few months, uh, our farmer reporter extraordinaire, Jeff Overly, has been all over this long-running opioid trial that I wanted to talk about for our second story today. And in this trial, New York's attorney general is accusing Teva Pharmaceuticals of creating an oversupply of opioids in the Empire State. Now, back in December, a jury reached a first-of-its-kind verdict when it found that Teva had substantially contributed to an opioid epidemic here in New York. But that result is now in jeopardy of possibly being undone after the state's lead litigator admitted to drastically overstating the number of pills that Teva allegedly pumped into New York. That's very interesting, drastically overstating. Tell us more about that because, you know, the figures in these opioid cases about how much uh, of these pills were floating around in various jurisdictions, they have been some high numbers. So when you say overstating already high numbers, what do we mean? Right. So, uh, yeah, it, 
that may be, I may have uh, said that as a bit of an understatement myself because in this situation, during closing arguments of the case, right before jurors were actually about to go into deliberations, the attorney claimed that Tiva was responsible for flooding New York with 150 billion narcotics bills. And it turns out that that number was actually closer to 300 million doses or about 0.2% of 150 billion. Uh, yeah, oh, that's a big wow. club, huh? It's a lot of zeros, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So how on earth do you mess that up? Right. So, I mean, not to be rude. Of course. Well, so for a little bit of background here, this case is just one of many uh, nationwide that are attempting to hold pharmaceutical companies liable for the opioid crisis. And this one in particular out of New York originally included other defendant companies who have since exited by paying billions of dollars in settlements. But Tiva and one of its distributors uh, were the only ones left standing when this case got to trial last summer. So, I'm thinking about six months ago or longer now, eight. And the trial has since been described by its presiding judge as a ultra marathon with millions of pages of discovery, thousands of pages of depositions, all over this question about whether Tiva downplayed the risk of opioids in the state and then added to the spread of this crisis. The state ultimately prevailed, like I said, but in closing arguments, the senior enforcement counsel for New York AG, his name is John Oleski, he introduced this bombshell evidence about how a Tiva affiliate uh, had sold all of these doses. And also, just for context here, it, it sounded wild when it came out. I mean, I think the number there is, if it was broken down, it would come out to like 7,500 doses for every man, woman, and child in New York. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's a flub, obviously. But um, what happened next? I mean, was this just a one-off thing that didn't really impact what happened in the in the trial? Or is this more serious? I mean, was this just a slip of the tongue, basically? Oleski actually told the court the very next day after these closing arguments that he had made the mistake and wanted to withdraw any comments or remarks related to that number. And Tiva was understandably pretty upset. And they questioned whether Oleski had even told his bosses about this mistake because he started out by just writing a letter directly to the judge. And then days later, Oleski admitted that the number was astronomically wrong. And he explained that it was just a simple multiplication mistake. I think it really came down to him multiplying the number of pills per package that were being sold. Right. And clearly just, I think he said he had missed a footnote that was would have helped him determine that he was using too high of a multiple. And so it's worth noting too in this situation that the judge in the case ultimately told the jury this before they reached their verdict. He told them to disregard that incorrect figure. So how did Teva react to all that? Were they okay with that being the resolution here? I suspect not. No, they really keyed into it. They're, they're kind of saying that in this situation, it's, it's just a bell that can't be unrung. After the verdict was reached at the end of December, Tiva filed for a mistrial and said that this mistake, quote unquote mistake, was made because Oleski wanted to shock the jury right before they were sent off to deliberations. And what's significant here is Tiva is actually feeling pretty good about their chances of getting a new trial. An anonymous source with the company told Jeff Overly that putting this kind of back of the bar napkin calculation into closing arguments is pretty much unheard of. And they also think it's emblematic of the state's propensity for following these wild accusations at farm companies just to see what sticks. So it sounds like we could see another trial here? It's definitely possible. I mean, uh, it's caused quite a stir and the judge in the case is expected to go ahead and hear oral arguments uh, on Tiva's mistrial request. I should note, though, experts did tell Jeff that given the extreme length of this trial, like I said, the ultra marathon nature of it, and the fact that it took so many months, that could actually weigh against the possibility of them declaring a mistrial over something that 
um, may not have an overarching effect on the jury's understanding of the case. Um, but it really comes down to the judge and how he interprets all of this. He's been with the jury for this long period of time. But things are up in the air, and I'm really excited to see what Jeff finds out next for us. The U.S. Soccer Federation and women's national team players reached a $24 million settlement this week, ending a high-profile equal pay case just weeks before the Ninth Circuit was set to hear the case. Here to talk with us about what the settlement means for pay equality is Nicole Saharsky, a partner with Mayor Brown and one of the attorneys that represented the players in the appellate proceedings. Really nice to have you with us, Nicole. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, let's begin really at the beginning. Tell me about what the female soccer players were alleging regarding their pay. Sure. So the women's national team players brought suit in 2019, uh, alleging unequal pay under the Equal Pay Act and under Title VII. So those are both provisions of federal law. And basically, they said that the men and the women are both doing essentially the same job in representing the United States in international soccer competitions. And the women just are not getting paid anywhere near the same rate of pay as the men. And, you know, the way that we like to think about it is that both the women and the men get paid for two things, essentially. They get paid for playing in games, they get paid appearance fees, and then they get paid for winning or performing well, they get performance bonuses. And when you look at it across the board for the men and the women, the women would always get lower appearance fees, lower performance bonuses. And that's true, even though the women were more successful than the men more popular than the men, and actually we're bringing in more money to the U.S. Soccer Federation than the men's team. So the case, I, if I do recall correctly, the case hit a roadblock in 2020 when the district court tossed uh, your Equal Pay Act and Civil Rights Act claims um, based on the fact that the women's team players actually made more than the men's team, as you just said. How did that ruling affect the case? So I think it was really disappointing. You know, at that point, it had been widely recognized by you know, the women's team, the members of the men's team, the sponsors, the companies that sponsor the team, members of Congress, and even federation representatives had recognized that the women and the men weren't being paid the same. And so for the district court to say that, in fact, oh, it was equal pay was pretty surprising. And the district court basically said that if you look at the overall amount of pay uh, during a certain time period, the women earned slightly more than the men. So doesn't that mean the pay has to be equal? And the answer is no. It's not equal pay if the women have to work more or perform better than the men to get the same pay. I mean, you can't say I'm going to pay a woman $5 an hour and a man $10 an hour and the woman should just work more and then it's going to be equal. And that's essentially what the district court said. I think for a lot of women around the nation, when that happened in in the course of this case, it felt all too familiar that women are often working really hard and people are like, no, it's equal now. It's fine. But they're putting in way more work than men. Yeah, I think it was very frustrating for the players, you know, really a low point. And that's actually when we were brought into the case, they were looking forward, wanted to press on, appeal that ruling that they thought was pretty obviously wrong and wanted to know what they could do about it. And so we put together a strategy of obviously filing our own briefs before the Court of Appeals and preparing our own arguments. But um, we got together a really great uh, amicus strategy, friend of the court strategy with all of the supporters that we have to, to really tell the Ninth Circuit that this just what didn't make sense at all. So the men's team filed a brief on our side, explaining that this wasn't anywhere near equal pay, which was great. 
The uh, federal government actually came in on our side, the EEOC, and said that this wasn't equal pay. Um, and many other organizations, the Women's Sports Foundation, the National Women's Law Center, a whole bunch of former federal officials, et cetera. So, you know, it was a great effort that we made uh, to bring to the appeals court to show why this decision just didn't make any sense at all. Well, let's turn to the exciting news of the week, which was the settlement. Um, the deal's for $24 million, but that's quite a magnitude less than the $66.7 million in back pay that the women's soccer players said that they were owed. Tell me about how you're viewing this. It feels like a win on the one hand, but maybe not as big as everyone had hoped for. Tell us more about that. I think it's a huge win. And I think there's you know two things that the players really wanted and needed to be able to resolve this case. One was a recognition that they had not been paid equally in the past. And that's what the back pay component, the $24 million is about, making up for that unequal pay uh, in the past, at least partially. But then you know there was a second component that was really incredibly important as well, which is looking forward, that they wanted U.S. soccer to agree so that it would be enforceable in a court that they had to pay the women equally going forward. And that's what U.S. soccer agreed to, that for all games and tournaments going forward, that they would pay the women and the men equally. So that's an incredible result. I mean, if you think about it, the women's national team was formed in 1985. And since then, the players, the women's players have been fighting for equal pay. I mean, just generation after generation of these players. And this is the first time where U.S. soccer has agreed that they will pay the women and the men equally. So, you know, I think the players understood this to be a huge win. I mean, just the message of congratulations that they were getting from some of the younger players, um, other players from around the world who, who really see them as, you know, um, leading the charge here and potentially that they could help make change in other countries. I think that they they thought saw that as a huge win too. And I know some of the current players were, were thanking some of the older players that they had kind of stood on their shoulders and, and continued the fight that some of the older players had begun. So it was a huge day. I think it was really exciting. I mean, let's put it this way. It's great to win a case without even having to do the oral argument. I mean, this is a case where, as you said, we lost summary judgment as of you know, a year or so ago, we were entitled to zero dollars and, you know, U.S. soccer had won. And so to turn it around so that they're willing to pay tens of millions of dollars to the women's team and to, you know, stop the unequal pay and really move forward together with the women's players on equal terms going forward is just tremendous. So as a union member myself, I'm very curious about how the uh, collective bargaining agreement is going to come into play here. I know the deal is contingent on the players ratifying a new collective bargaining agreement. Do you foresee any challenges in reaching a CBA um, that provides that equal rate of pay going forward? So you're right that the agreement is con- the settlement agreement is contingent on ratification of a new CBA, and that's something that the Women's National Team Players Association, along with their lawyers and U.S. Soccer, have been hard at work on for months. You know, they've had dozens of bargaining sessions. They've talked about a lot of different ideas for how they could equalize pay going forward for all tournaments, including for the World Cup. And I think they've most recently they've extended those uh, negotiation sessions through the end of March, you know, hoping that things will be wrapped up by then. So I think everyone is hard at work on it. In fact, there was a um, press call the other day. It must have been Tuesday. And some of the players couldn't participate in it because they were actually in an active collective bargaining session right, right then. So I know it's something that everyone takes really seriously and hopes to wrap up soon. So do you think they will come to some solution that handles the issue of how FIFA structures its prizes? Because the way it stands now, that's a real structural hindrance to true equal pay if sort of the prize bucket for women's competition is significantly smaller than the available prize pool for men, even if they get the same percentage. 
the sheer dollar figures won't be equal between men and women. Right. I think there's a couple steps to the approach to the World Cup. I mean, the first step is that U.S. soccer has agreed that it, it must come up with a way with the men and the women that it can provide equal pay for the World Cup. So it has committed to that through the settlement. But then the question is, you know, can you also get some change for FIFA? And I know that's something that the players have talked about. They really want to partner with U.S. soccer and uh, Cindy Parlo Conan going forward to actually approach FIFA together um, and, and make the case that, you know, this investment in women's sports has been so tremendous. It's led to such great growth for the sport. You know, there's just people all around the world that watch. They'll be watching the World Cup again this year in Australia and New Zealand that really now it's time for FIFA to make some change too. So I know we've talked about how exciting this settlement was. It's it's a big one. And like you said, it was in the face of having uh, lost some earlier stages of this case. But it is still a settlement deal instead of an actual court ruling on the merits of the arguments. So I, uh, some people are worried that that may be... Um, leaves us in a place that's less secure than if we did have a merits ruling from a court. Do you think there'll be a lasting impact here? Or do you think that is a bit of a hindrance to forward momentum in pay equity? I think it's going to set a significant precedent. I mean, just in terms of there being an enforceable court ruling, you know, we have the settlement, it has a contingency. When it is approved uh, by the district court, then that will be enforceable in a court. U.S. soccer will have agreed that it has to pay the men and the women equally, and that's enforceable in court going forward. And I mean, just in terms of the practical impacts, it is it is such a huge deal that the women's team has been around for decades and decades. And this is the first time that U.S. soccer has really agreed that, it, that to pay the men and women equally. And I think that that's because of, you know, their leadership with Cindy Parlo Cohn, who's a former player. I think it's because of, you know, the investment in the sport has really paid off for U.S. soccer. The revenues that the women's team brings in are just incredibly significant that, you know, they're they're seeing a lot of benefits from working together with the players on the women's team and continuing to invest in the sport. So I think it is a huge deal. I think it's going to mean a lot for women in sports, uh, not just the the people who will come next on the women's national team, but in in sports. And I hope more broadly than that. Yeah, this has definitely been an exciting saga to watch unfold. Really happy to have had you on the show to tell us all about the settlement. Thanks so much for joining us. Been great. Thanks. our show is something offbeat. And um, I'd like to talk about some news out of Hollywood, one of my favorite things to discuss. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are starring in a remake of War of the Roses. Nice reference. That's excellent. Well done. Well done. Haley, thanks for saying nice reference. I realize that I just shouted out a very old movie, Um, but they're not actually in that remake of a movie. Instead, they're doing it in real life. It's uh, a bitter divorce battle that Everybody thought was mostly finished with Brad and Angelina, but there's some tendrils that have sparked up just this week. So here's what's up. Brad is suing Angelina, saying she went behind his back to sell their interest in the winery they own together in the south of France to a Russian oligarch. Wow. Topical. Uh, it's got everything you want in there. <laughs> it's, you know, it's got Russia. It's got wineries. It's got Hollywood. This is the trifecta of, of stories that we could have covered. This story has it all. Yeah. yeah. If you have lost track, 
and how could you? Because they are so important to America. <laughs> Rodney Angelina began a bitter divorce battle in 2016. Most things wrapped up within a few years by around 2019 or so. But there's still some fights to be had. There's been some additional custody battles with them, but also this new thing. According to Brad's lawsuit, they had an agreement that neither of them would sell their share in a French winery called Chateau Miraval without the consent of the other person. So they basically would have essentially a first right of refusal to try to buy it themselves. And, and there were some arrangements that way. They were actually married at the vineyard in 2014. They've used the estate as a home for their kids. It's a pretty wild estate, too. It's got a 35-room mansion, all these gardens. It has aqueducts. And there's even a moat. Wow. You yeah. kind of hold wow. on to your okay. moats. When you, when you get a moat, you got to hold on to it. I, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> With everything you have. Brad would very much like to hold on to it, guys. He's pissed off. Uh, the vineyard is a bit of a passion project for him. I don't know if you guys, before this lawsuit happened, had followed along with this at all, but allegedly he's put a lot of money and sweat equity into this business to grow it into this multi-million dollar wine business. It's now one of the world's top producers of rosé. Oh so gosh. again, adding to the Mad Libs feeling here, throw in the word rosé. Brad's been a driving force in Miraval's success. He's been the winery's public face. He's in a bunch of commercials. He's, you know, posed in ads. He's given a bunch of interviews. And he said stuff like this. I'd just like to read a quote from him. I'm a farmer now. I love learning about the land and which field is most suitable for which grape and the drama of September and October. Are we picking today? Where are the sugar levels? How is the acidity? Is it going to rain? It's been schooling for me. In the off months, I enjoy cleaning the forest and walking the land. Cleaning the forest? Brad, what, <laughs> what are I you mean, doing out there? He's becoming a vintner in his um, later years. I don't know what to tell you. Brad Pitt's really into this winery. I, see, I love this so much. I hadn't read that quote until now. And there's, when you said the drama of September and October, I just, I mean, <laughs> right? So poetic. Uh, He's yeah. into it. So here's what Angelina allegedly did. So without telling Brad Pitt, she sold her share to a Luxembourg based spirits manufacturer that's controlled by a Russian oligarch named Yuri Scheffler. Brad says she knew that Scheffler would seek to control the winery basically undermining his whole investment and that this would also keep him from using that mansion property as a family home. Aww. <laughs> I know. Like sad. from Brad Pitt's <laughs> perspective, he's bummed. So according to Brad, the couple had acquired Miraval in 2008. They both initially invested in the winery business, but Angelina stopped contributing by 2013. He continued, however, because again, he's a farmer now. Right. So he kept pouring money into it he ultimately funded about 70% of the investment. And so here's what he had to say about this suit. Jolie seeks to recover unearned windfall profits for herself while inflicting gratuitous harm on Pitt. Jolie long ago stopped contributing to Miraval while Pitt poured money and sweat equity into the wine business. Jolie seeks to seize profits she has not earned and returns on an investment she did not make. Well, you know what? I mean, I don't want to judge too quickly here, but give the man his moat back. Come on. <laughs> Let him clean his forest. This is ultimately a test of which of these mega actors do you like better? Angelina Jolie, who just wanted out of this wine business, or Brad Pitt, who would like to reclaim his moat and chateau?
thanks guys for talking to me about that one. Good to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great to be here. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our special guest this week, Nicole Saharsky, and our contributing reporters, Jeff Overly, Zach Zager, Lauren Berg, and Andrew Carpin. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening. That definitely helps other people find our show. And if you want to know more about anything we talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.